Welcome to Missionary Mindset. This is the podcast where we do a deep dive on all things missions in East Asia. This week we'll be talking to Peter Wong. He's a missionary currently serving in Taipei, Taiwan. Today we'll be discussing his seminar, How Does the Growing Tension Between the U.S. and China Impact Western Missionaries' Ministry? Welcome to the show, Peter. Glad to have you. My, my name is Peter Wang, W-A-N-G. Um, I was born in Taiwan. I went to the United States when I was 14 years old and stay in Florida in my high school. And that's in the 80s, long, long time ago. So we, our family actually helped uh, start a couple of churches, one in Jacksonville, one in Orlando, both Chinese American churches in that area in the 80s. Oh, that's that's when Chinese Americans started to really grow, especially the, a lot of the student population. And so they started a lot of the churches there. And then I was looking around, I said, I need to go somewhere with a little more Asian. So I went to the school with the most Asian present at that point, which is UC Berkeley, 42%. So never left California since. So I went through my undergrad and worked in a startup for one year. I knew I was going to be in ministry somehow. So I switched gear and became a nonprofit startup. <laughs> so <laughs> I've, been in the, yeah, I, I've been in the ministry, uh, actually started uh, as a youth pastor and then later on pastor and then actually church planter multiple times all the way to about five years ago in 2015 or so. Uh, I kind of moved from a church pastor church planter in U.S. to become a director of a missions agency in North America, Chinese Bible mission. Oh, wow. That's, that's awesome. So what has this, so what's been the most challenging time in your ministry? Uh, multiple times. Uh, I think one, uh, there are a couple of times, uh, I think I was probably on my second church plant. It was very difficult. Uh, it was with a very small group of young college grads. And then about a year into it, we hit 2008 financial crisis. So half of my population of 40 students were unemployed. So it was a very difficult to sustain a, you know, so financial sustainable ministry going. So that was a very difficult time. Another difficult time, I think uh, it was probably just um, moving to Taiwan. And I always had a, kind of salary pay ministry. I had to fundraise and I became a person that had to fundraise not just for my own salary, but for the whole organization. So that, that was a change, especially for my wife. Um, my wife is a licensed psychotherapist, Christian therapist. You know, fundraising for her is a new concept as well. And I think it was diff- more difficult for her to swallow that than, than me. She always made three times more than I did. So Yeah, so you moved from... Orlando area, Jacksonville, Orlando to UC Berkeley. Always kind of ministered to sort of the techie startup a lot with a lot of Chinese immigrants, you know, Asian Americans. I mean, that seems like a perfect way to get into like, especially to get put in the door with a lot of people here. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, <laughs> many, many people in my congregation in US, they have multiple homes, you know, I mean, they're, they're like yeah. the semiconductor sort of CEOs, you know, those startup people. So they have awesome. home one and things like that. So <laughs> there's still a lot of connections that kind of carry over. 
That's really neat. Yeah, it's definitely very techy yes. area. <laughs> I, I do want to say one thing about my background that probably gives me some insight into sure. China yeah. is I have been doing a lot of seminary teaching in China since 2010. Oh, wow. So um, I started just teaching two weeks a year. And one of the huge reasons why I transitioned to move to Taiwan was by 2015, my wife says, hey, I counted all the days that you were out in 2015. And that's over 100 days you spent in China. So why don't we just move somewhere closer and we'll <laughs> shorten the commute. Uh, so, so I have traveled very extensively in China. I have a lot of friends and missionary connections that just kind of gives me a lot of insight and i end up doing a lot of um something to do with my background i was a sociology major in okay. at berkeley i actually got a full scholarship to study in one of the ucs in sociology of religion in That's china awesome. that was wow. going to be my sort of subject but got kind of god pulled me into seminary and ministry life ministry so so I always had this kind of my and my family background is very business oriented. So we always own business ourselves. And so, so I kind of end up since 2010, did a lot of nonprofit organizational consulting, especially the Western missionaries or Western nonprofits in China. They started to encounter a lot of different problems in China. How do they operate? Um, so, so I kind of consulted them and kind of found out more about their background. And, and so it gives me a kind of a different perspective of what's going on inside China. Then I'm always a, a sort of student of a Chinese history and things like that. So that's how it prepared me to actually even give this seminar, I think. It wasn't really a research project. It just kind of, I kind of knew everything <laughs> that was happening already. <laughs> it just kind of came out and yes. this is it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. So let's, um, let's talk about the seminar. Okay, so um, the reason why I want to talk about this topic, the growing tension between US and China, how does it impact Western missionaries in our ministry in China or in Taiwan is because I think most people, especially the missionaries in Taiwan or uh, the Christian community in North America, they have zero knowledge about what's going on here. So, so I kind of want to provide a overall framework historically i want to provide some information so for the listeners that that might be interested in this area can 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 have some place to start so this is a very general overarching view yeah i think especially the western church western missionaries and the western church as a whole is very like they're starting to become aware of some of the Things that are going on with like with just religion as a whole in China, but I still think they're very much kind of in the dark. <laughs> so I think it's a very like it's a very ideal topic to approach. Yeah. Also, I think actually in the last 20 years or so, missions to China from North America or the Western world has been hot, basically. Yeah. I mean, if you're talking about missions to the Chinese speaking people, that's mainly to China, not to Taiwan. Yeah. <laughs> and, and a lot of that has been stopped. And I think if anyone has any interest, what happened, and, and a lot of them, they're still kind of trying to figure out reasons why that stopped. You know, why 
they were so friendly to us in 2016 that you know flip switch flipped you know just kind of what happened i kind of blew up all of a sudden right everybody got expelled you know i mean people had 72 hours 48 hours and they had to get out of the country i mean those are the stories that we've been hearing here in taiwan because they kind of found refuge in taiwan (laughs) didn't have anywhere else to go (laughs) yes and this is another mandarin speaking world they might be continuing in the ministry so yeah that's so a lot of people are trying to find those kind of answers and this also hopefully kind of provide some background for, for, for their story or their narrative as well. Awesome. So what do you think, like, what was the main change in 2016? Cause you kind of mentioned it a little bit that most people either don't understand or just don't know about. Yes. I can, I can tell you this by giving you an illustration. Okay. So uh, I was consulting to a small orphanage in the middle of China started by a couple, white missionary couple that was teaching English in one of the local universities in the early nineties. And this is a long time ago, very early on. And as I interviewed them, one of them, uh, they just told me the story that they said uh, one of the nights they just wake up hearing some babies cry outside of their apartment building. They opened the door and they saw some someone have abandoned their baby and they thought they are foreigners they must have resources and that led them to start an orphanage since the late 90s it gets more and more students and starting from the early 2000s they would regularly uh, with the partnership of the local social welfare agency 30 to 40 children Oh, to wow. be part of their agency. And then they will fundraise in North America and they will bring medical supplies, they will bring diapers, they will bring, you know, just resources and whatever they can, donate a baby clothes. It was a flourishing ministry. Everybody was very happy. They made great friends with the local uh, social welfare department. So they are buddies. And they were at a loss when 2016, their friends of many years said, I am sorry, which is cannot give you the regularly promised 30 to 40 children. Now that we don't have those kids, we still have those orphans, we just cannot give it to you. And they would not give them any reason why they were at a loss. And some, through some connection, they found me and we, we started doing some consulting for them. And as I digging a little more stories and interview some of the different peoples and None of them were very direct, but ultimately they refer me to a speech by Chairman Xi. Mm. And this is what happened in 2016. Basically, Chairman Xi from the very top issue to the whole country. There is a fundamental shift in the mentality of how Chinese, they view themselves. Prior to this, all the Western charity work, all the Western nonprofit work, it was viewed as if, hey, Westerners, they're gonna bring free resources to us, to our orphans and feed our orphans, clothe our orphans. That's great, let them keep on doing this. We are gaining, we're, we're getting a free lunch out of this. Okay, it's a very utilitarian, practical point of view. Yeah. Okay. And 2016 with Xi speech, what basically is saying, 
we are number two economy in the world. Comrades, now we have to act as if we're number two economy in the world. Let's stop hanging out our dirty laundries to these Westerners to see. We're gonna take care of our own poor. We're gonna take care of our own you know, orphans. We're gonna take care of our own problems, okay? So that is the reason why all these common rules before, you know, good relationship, you know, the local magistrate or whatever, it didn't work anymore because there's a fundamental shift. It's shameful. We are number two most powerful economy in the world. Let's take care of our own people. Okay, so that was the reason why. And I think it was very difficult for a lot of our Western friends to understand that they have been operating in China for tens, twenties, many, many years. Yeah. I mean, that, that would be a huge, not just shift, like as a personality, like within the government, but like to shift yes. all the people's mindsets, that'd just be a huge undertaking. And by the way, you can see a, a more advanced form of this is July, you know, late June, 2021, they just celebrated the 100 years of Communist Party formation. And guess what they done whole month? Doing stuff that was, you can be proud to be Chinese. I mean, they show their uh, uh, taking three astronauts into space. Hey. They're gonna building their own space station. You know, so again, it's a, a nationalist movement. It's, uh, you know, hey, we gotta, not shame our ancestors. Let's, you know, we're number two economy in the world. Let's act as such. Fundamentally shift in mindset. Yeah. So let's talk about that some, the historical side of it, because I know you mentioned it in your seminar with regards to the, the CCP, the Communist Party of China. Um, let's go ahead and go into some of that. Your seminar, you talked about the United States and China and their roles their philosophical differences. So do you think that the United States underestimated the resolve that China had against the philosophies of the West? And, and how has that affected not just their ideologies then, but has that shown to be a common theme, at least up to 2021 <laughs> so far? Historically, I mean, post-war, post-Cold War, okay? Once the, you know, Russia kind of collapse, communist Russia collapse. U.S. is on the top. I mean, politically, it's called hegemony, right? So there's superpower. I mean, there's absolutely no rival, no match whatsoever. With its sort of democratic capitalism, it was very clear to sense triumphalism. So they're like, hey, of course, we conquer the world, basically, with these two things, right? Yeah. And that is also the point China starting to really take a lot of the capitalistic tendencies, the market econ economies, strategies. So America in its history, just winning the Cold War in eternal optimism of <laughs> American spirit that they, they really believed. I mean, and, and at that point, I, I, if you interview any of the political leader at the time, is that their thinking would be, if we just help China develop economically, they are gonna become democratic. They're gonna become 
more free. And again, they have some other references for this. I mean, they look at Hong Kong. They look they'll at be, they'll be Taiwan. just like us, but that's their yeah, whole thought. They, they look like Taiwan. You look at Korea, the four tigers, Asian tigers in the early 90s. It, it's everything kind of just kind of pushes this philosophical case that if we just help them develop, they'll become more like us, like you said. Well, now 30 years later, we found out that did not work. And I, like I said, doesn't matter if you agree with Trump's sort of reaction to China or his policies, he absolutely nailed it in the head that the, those are failed kind of policies, failed perspectives. So that, I mean, again, when you're in the late 90s, you just won the Cold War. I don't know what else you would think. I mean, that's... You just you assume know, it's going to work out the same way. Yes. And, and it, because it did. won everywhere else in the world at that time. It definitely shows like a very, like a, almost like a failed 50-year policy towards the country. I haven't looked a ton at U.S. history with regards to long-term policies towards countries, but I feel like they've had very few failures when it comes to long-term <laughs> policies like that. So this would definitely be the, the most glaring, I guess, in their eyes. <laughs> yeah. Or my question with regards to all that, China allowed all the missionaries in, a lot of the Western influence for a long time. But I read your quote that you quoted John Fairbanks um, yeah. with regards to saying that basically missions in China was wasted or pointless during the 1800s. Do you think maybe a hundred years from now, or are there any historians like John Fairbanks that would say that the missionaries efforts in China were wasted during the 1900s or even into the future in the 2000s? What is your yes, prognosis of that? <laughs> let me, let me, again, let me put it in the context of when John Fairbanks made that quote or said that. Perfect. It was early 70s. They just went through cultural revolution. They're still going on. They're practically, Western media is non-existent. There's very scant information that's coming out of China that is credible or that could be resourced. At that point, it's not just John Fairbank. It's all missiologists <laughs> yeah. of the West. They just thought, you know, Hudson Taylor, man, you tried. Great job, you know. Good job. <laughs> was, you know, it's like because they don't know what happened, they don't know yeah. what's going on, and and I think this is a good time to dive into the growth of Chinese Christian Christianity in the yeah. latter half of twentieth century. Was um, basically, I mean, nowadays everybody will say, "Well, John Fairbank is clearly wrong," yeah, because we have what, 260 million Christians, that's their conservative estimate, whatever, by 2020. China is going to be a, a country that has most Christian. Yeah. By number. They have the most number. people. <laughs> so have most it makes people. sense. <laughs> it's 10%. It's most people, right? Yeah. So, so that's, John. John's clearly wrong, but, but the problem is that they just didn't have enough information. Okay, so, but what happened to Christianity in China, and nobody knew about this, why it grew so fast, is because they went underground. Okay, 
And missiologists nowadays, present day, studying China, they will have to agree that one of the person that we have to thank for the spread of Christianity in China will be Chairman Mao. The very unlikely Putting pressure. <laughs> and why? They said that basically Chairman Mao have emptied or uprooted all the Chinese traditional religions, the Taoism, Buddhism, you know, the folklore religion, where they surround itself in temple worship, idol worship, and they always had an endorsement of the empires of the people in control. So they only know how to operate with this kind of endorsement. Okay, so they have a free land. They will never be taxed with the temple land. Uh, their money was given to them. But Christianity has always existed in China as a marginalized religion. It has always survived underground. So when Mao took away all the other folk religions, Taoism, Buddhism, basically it wipes out all the enemies of Christianity. It, it still operate underground and people still have spiritual need and the monks were not there anymore. What do they look to? Someone pray for them and someone who's talking about Jesus. That, that is also a huge point in the last that's, 40 years. That's kind of a perfect segue that you bring up now. I was reading some of the historical stuff that, that Mao was talking about at the time, whenever he was starting to do away with a lot of the religious practices and things like that and protections really is he talked about the u.s having spiritual aggression what do you think of his comments even though like from a historical perspective what are your thoughts on yeah i mean he clearly i was just reading an article recently on the differences between mao and xi even though they are kind of partaking on a very similar path they said that mao had a lot more ideological control of people People really, there's a reason why you still see people deify Mao, is that they really, Mao really had the control of people's mind and ideas. There were not that many differences of opinions. If you do, Cultural Revolution will make sure that you don't, you know? So it's a. <laughs> it's Mao's way and no yes. other way. <laughs> yes. And while she clearly now, he has the control use of modern technology the internet, social media, censoring, yeah. you know, big data. It's a different way of controlling people's mind. Mao's form definitely is more pure, according to this author, right? So, so he certainly understand that US, West present a very different way of thinking, uh, a foundation of what a flourishing life is supposed to be. So those kind of things, I think that's what he was referring to. There's no doubt about it. And he's very astute about that. Yeah, I, it's very interesting talking about Mao and now and she, when China decided to kick out all, basically all the Western missionaries as much as possible, it, it happened kind of in a similar timeline as the U.S. kind of breaking away from the church politically and as a society the normal church life that you'd seen before where people, even if it was a country club aspect, most people went to church, whereas now more and more people are, are breaking away and not going to church. Do you think that's contributed to the declining numbers of, of vocational missionaries that people like from the U.S. moving to China? Um, no, I, I think 
the last at least last four or five years, it's practically impossible. Okay, that is going to be my my next yes, question. So, so it's I, I I think what you're saying about the decline of Christians' influence and discipleship in America is real. That that right. is a correct assessment, but I don't think that impacted the numbers of missionaries going to China. I think many people still want to go to China. There's just not that many people can't go in anymore. Yeah, I mean, we have just personally, we have lots of friends that that have tried or have also been kicked out of China. Yeah. You know, going through legal channels to to get in, and then if you're caught sharing the gospel with anybody, basically, it's a first one way ticket out. So yes, so I'm sure you. Yeah, have so many. it's not it's not a it's not a supply issue. It's a demand issue. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. As a business perspective, it's definitely yes. a demand issue more than yes. supply. So I guess moving towards Taiwan, I have a hypothetical question. So with, with the way that China is acting towards Taiwan lately, with the way we've seen them not really work towards or do what their, their promise was towards Britain and Hong Kong, where they, they're kind of showing their strength in Hong Kong and just taking over and just being like, well, it's done now. It's too late. <laughs> you can't change it. Do you think as a hypothetical that if they were to take, try to take over Taiwan, whether militarily or just politically or however that would work, would they stop at just Taiwan or would they want to expand further? How do you think their ideology works within that? Okay. I need to provide a little background. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. This so the background, this has something to do with what I just said about how Chinese have changed their self-perception. Yeah. Okay. So I want to go back about 100 years, maybe 130 years. So end of 19th century, 1880s, 1890s, during the Qing dynasty, China have lost a series of wars to Japan, to Germany, to France, to US, to Russia. They conceded many, many port cities to various colonial powers. Hong Kong was One at that time <laughs> to yeah. for 100 years. That's why it was this way. And 1997 was returned to China. Okay. So those are all the unequal treaty that was signed during that time. Yeah. So since that, uh, the Chinese historian, Chinese people vividly understand this as a hundred years of humiliation. Hmm. That this is an assault on the integrity of China and Chinese as a nation proper. That carving out of various parts of China is act of invasion, act of humiliation to China. So this taking back of Hong Kong with such a strong, harsh hand. And a lot of my friends in Hong Kong said, but we, we offer so much. We're kind of the financial hub of the, you know, sort of where China meets the West. You know, you have banks here, all these things. They would lose billions and billions of dollars of, you know, trade and all this. Why would they do this? I said, this is not about money anymore. It's not about economy anymore. It's not about all those things. It's about national pride. It's about national sentiment. Mm -hmm. So they're saying that, hey, all those 
pro-Hong Kong independence movement people, people are making trouble. You guys are kind of still acting as a puppet of those colonial powers or colonial ghosts of the past. <laughs> so we need to wipe you out no matter what. Yeah. In order for you to be an integrated part of China. Taiwan. People might say, wait a second, we have semiconductors here. You guys don't have that. You don't, you don't want to bomb this. You, there's a valuable assets in Taiwan, right? Why would you want to do this? I said, no, no, no. People don't look at this like this. This is a Taiwan was, you know, as part of the attrition of the war, conceded to Japan in the late 1800s. And then Japan gave it back <laughs> to the Republic of China, whoever won the Second World War. Okay, so it became part of Chinese sovereign territory again. And now it's occupied by a rebel nationalist party. For Xi and all Chinese people, most Chinese people, they still think like this. We need to finish what Chairman Mao did not finish is to unite China altogether. And Taiwan being part of historically part of China, they want to complete this historical mission, fulfill the historical destiny of China. This is a huge deal. So it is very important to them. Uh, and she is bringing this up over and over and the language has changed. I mean, there's just a recent article um, in a local Taiwan newspaper it talks about, it analyzes Xi's speech since 2015, 2016, when he came on power, his talks about China. In the beginning, there were more emphasis about peaceful negotiation, political means of reunification. The last two talks, it's mainly about military, mainly about we will do anything, any means possible, because they, they just don't see the peaceful ways possible anymore. Yeah. So, so my background is, is international business. And so with that, we had to take a lot of geopolitics and culture courses and things like that. And the language that she is using now as compared to then has been very obvious <laughs> to I think anyone who even just does a cursory read of, yes. of any speech that, that he's given lately. Do you think that the U.S. is having a huge effect on... China having not already tried to invade? Do you think they're, they're kind of holding them at bay without aggression, but aggression? <laughs> well, absolutely. I mean, U.S. has played world's cop for yeah. many, many years, right? I mean, that's not a secret yeah. after World War II, you know, really. And U.S. has been in that role for a long time. And like we were saying before, you know, it, he, U.S. is the sole superpower after, you know, Russia kind of disintegrated. And the whole, the, I mean, the reason why the whole world doesn't have more wars is because they all agree that U.S. is a superpower. It does play still a role of the world's cup. I think this is a very dangerous time though. I think if China did take over Taiwan and there's absolutely no consequences, I think US is gonna lose that role. And I think that's gonna be very dangerous for the United States. I think we'll see a lot more chaotic world, period.
without U.S. playing that role. Yeah, I think the the U.S. deciding, even though it's not an official written down 100% ratified treaty to protect Taiwan, but I think deciding to protect Taiwan, even just because of the ideology of Taiwan matching the ideology of the U.S., is, is smart when it comes to just geopolitics. Because we've talked a lot about geopolitics, do you think the average working person in Taiwan is worried about like the college kid who's just getting out of college looking for a job? They've done their you know, three or six months, depending on how long they have to do in the military. Do you think they're worried about the future conflict of U.S. and China and, and how that will affect them? Or do you think they're just kind of, uh, it's tomorrow's problem? <laughs> okay. That's, there's two observations I have about that. Number one, they are resigned because they've been living in this conflict for, I don't know, 70 years, right? Since, True. <laughs> yeah, 70, 80 years, whatever, okay? Uh, so they're resigned. And number two, they kind of gave up, okay? And I, I did, this is an unofficial survey. Of course, <laughs> it's a very uh, sensitive subject. Yeah. I, I just put it so, sort of, as a joke, okay, to a bunch of young college, recent college grads of Taiwan in Taipei, okay, maybe 30 of them. I said, hey, what would happen? How many of you would really defend Taiwan if missiles shot over? Like you're willing to die for your country. Like you will get a gun from your government and kind of just, okay. <laughs> Out of 30 people, maybe one or two. Okay, and this conversation quickly evolved into where would be the safest place to hide. Then it quickly evolved into two camp between these young college grads. One say, would they'll just go hike into the mountain somewhere nobody will, you know, want to bomb that. And the other group says, I will drive really close to TSMC because that would be a valuable asset. <laughs> Semiconductor. <laughs> so, so out of 30 people, you have two. You'll defend Taiwan, national pride. The other 28 are mainly finding their way to safety. And that's the young people I have encountered so far. Again, and totally anecdotal, not yeah. sociological, statistical, you know. 30 people doesn't normally make a good survey. <laughs> no, no. But yeah, that's very interesting that, because it's very different than most Western mindsets, I would say with regards to like defending your country, even if it's Europe, Canada, um, the U.S. obviously is, is very much will defend our country. And I think that's very, it's, it just shows that the mindset of the day-to-day -day person is very different than in the East as compared to the West. So that's, that's very interesting. <laughs> Moving a little bit, back to kind of what we were talking about ch with China, with the ministry all pretty much being underground at this point. Um, even in Hong Kong, a lot of more ministry obviously is taking underground at this point. Is it very similar? Missions in China is very similar to kind of missions in the Middle East where you kind of want to be underground. Like you don't really want people to know that you're a Christian. I, I would say yes. Um, and I actually would say that it's a little bit different from the Middle East. I would say that this is kind of in a cyclical okay. thing. Is we're actually probably going back more to Mao era. Okay. 
Okay, so what I would say is that the Western influence in terms of Christianity in China is gonna get very little. I, I envision us having very little contact. It will be more and more difficult. I'm just about to teach a class to some students in China, but just for security reasons, we yeah. had to find many different ways of connecting. Uh, you know, it's just gonna get more difficult. Do you think that because China is, is closing more and more to not just Western society, but more and more just in on itself, it's, it's basically closing to us, you know, and no more. Do you think because of that, because of China viewing Taiwan, even if they don't take Taiwan, if they still view Taiwan in a similar manner, will Taiwan be able to not telling people that they're Christian, they're just going to China to do a job and they just happen to also be a Christian. <laughs> okay, okay, let's, let's focus on this question. Basically, are there still doors, are there still possibilities of going to China as a full-time missionaries or some missionary capacity, okay? Yeah. I can say that basically if you, you are not Asian looking from the US or from the West, <laughs> you probably have zero to 5% chance you can go in. Okay, very, very difficult. I have known of a couple of friends of ours that's in there, but they are deep covered. They have very bulletproof, you know, sort of a resume. Yeah. You know, they have a legitimate company. They have whatever, okay, that they're doing. Some of the most popular way of going to China prior there will be two kind of visa. One is the teaching visa, teaching English. The other one is a student visa. Okay, so both have kind of been figured out by the Chinese government. Okay, so that's why, as you have mentioned before, if you want to go in as an English teacher, they monitor you. Yeah. 10 times more than 10 years ago. Okay, you know, all your lesson plan needs to be approved. They will send a Communist Party member to sit in your class to record you, you know, all those things. Okay, so it's just much more difficult, period. And then as a student, I mean, they're like, dude, you've been in our country for six years and you're 45 years old. I mean, what, what are you doing, you know? I mean, <laughs> so they, they kind of, you know, and of course it's easier for them to do this because we're doing COVID. So, so this is, multiplied by COVID. The Westerner going to China is practically non-existent as missionary, the opportunity. Uh, if you are Chinese American, have some kind of connection to Taiwan, Hong Kong passport, or you're Taiwanese or Hong Kongers going back to China, that door is still open, but I do not know how long that door will be open. And so yeah. more the people that I recruit right now are Chinese Americans overseas, Canadian, Chinese American, American, you know, Canadian, Chinese, or Chinese, Canadian, Chinese American. <laughs> However it works, yeah. <laughs> Chinese yeah. Peruvian, whatever they come from, you know, yeah. that the Christians, they, they can still, we can still go back to China. That's still possible. So, but again, like I said, how long that door is going to open for us, it's, it's, I think it's still closing but that door is still open to us and we, we intend to do it as long as we can. Yeah. I do want to say this though. I mean, 
But I think most of people are interested in China. Besides that, it seems like it's a coast doors, there's a hint of danger. I mean, in the last 20 years, China has been way more open to the gospel. Oh, yeah. So I, I would say from an evangelism, missiologist point of view, China has been a much ready, much softer soil than Taiwan. So, yeah. I mean, I actually think you have to be a better missionary to hack it in Taiwan. <laughs> I hate to say like, you know, you know what I'm trying to say, like yeah. just more effort, more, I mean, less return. It, it just seems like it's, it's tougher feel. People, well, it's always, anytime, I mean, even just an example, anytime you tell a child not to do something, they want to do it. So yes. like anytime you tell people, especially a group of people, a large group of people, hey, don't listen to this person. Yes. Everybody's going to go listen to that person because <laughs> they want to know why they're not supposed to listen to that person. Right, right, right. And so, yeah, so they have, I mean, she has inadvertently made people more available to the gospel than, than less available. Yes, yes. And, and so, yeah, so I, I definitely think it's very interesting. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with your assessment of people being ready to listen. How has in your estimation, how has COVID affected ministry, especially the underground church in China and ministry as a whole in China and Taiwan? Oh, I think China is different from Taiwan. COVID basically driven out all the foreigners. So all the Christian movement has to be more indigenous. It's great. It's a great yeah. thing. Okay. It's a great thing. And it's going to be very difficult for foreigners to go back in so again this is the reason why i kind of refer back to kind of a maoist era is we're going to have less and less influence and then they're just going to brew by themselves underground and who knows by the time we emerge out of this again after cultural revolution number two 50 percent of chinese people could be christian already (laughs) (laughs) who knows right and The West people might say, oh, everything we did in the 90s are going to waste. But who knows? <laughs> we could be wrong, okay? <laughs> so that, that we just don't know. But I, I'm seeing the similar kind of cycles going on in China, okay? COVID kind of just, a, it's an easy, convenient way of China separating themselves from the West, yeah. isolating them. All right, in terms of Taiwan, I firsthand see sort of the, during the COVID, the rise and sort of fall of the kind of different kind of population. So I'm from Bay Area. I have a lot of Taiwanese American connections. You know, I have a lot of friends, Asian Americans, mixed marriage, whatever. So a lot of people means, hey, their kids are staying at home doing online school. So instead yeah. they said, I'm going to take my third graders and fifth graders coming back to Taiwan, which just sees this as a sabbatical. They will learn a little better Taiwanese and Chinese and we'll head back. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. I mean, I don't have a research number, but I personally know probably about 100 Asian Americans that came back to Taiwan. It's funny that you bring that up because we, I guess this was right before the restrictions here in Taiwan came down. Um, we had several people in a restaurant with us with me and Haley at the same time um, and we were listening to them talk and they were talking about how you know if COVID starts to go bad we'll just head back home we've been here for a year already 
Yeah. <laughs> so like, those are the people that I kind of know. Okay. Yeah. It's in my circle of friends. <laughs> and so I have many of those COVID nomads, if you want to call it. I, I, they wouldn't oh, qualify perfect. as refugees, but you know, they, they're too rich to be refugees. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, they, they, they all went back like two months ago, uh, yeah. six weeks ago. If we did some digging into it, I, I would say probably in the 15 to 20,000, I would not be surprised of Asian Americans or Asian Canadians that can have went. Came, yeah, came, came for a year and left yes. after a year. Yes. Uh, I, I would agree with that number. I've seen just on, you know, on the Facebook, you know, buy, sell trade groups that, that everybody's yeah. a part of. So many foreigners selling things. They're like, we're leaving Taiwan selling all our stuff <laughs> and so yeah it's very interesting the the covid because then you have the group that stayed like like us obviously <laughs> that we're still here um how do you think it's affected the ministry with regards to people like us i know for for our stuff everything's just gone online um which is very similar obviously to the way most of the world did it but um what's kind of your thoughts on that my thought on this is pretty much, I mean, again, I feel like we're 18 months late to the party. Um, so a lot of the things that the West has learned by going online that we're just experiencing and I would agree, okay? Basically, when you, after you go online, it's people who are really committed, they'll stay. It's practically impossible to do outreach. People who never came, barely, you know, it's difficult to bring new people in without yeah. human connection. Some of the uh, statistics in America says that the people who get into a, uh, before there used to be kind of peripheral commitment to a small group, actually online makes it easier. So small group commitment sometimes goes higher. Yeah. Okay. There's a better way of connecting in small groups online not so good way of connecting via large, you know, worship service, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of what's going to happen. And I think that's the same trend here in Taiwan. Talking more about Taiwan missions, what would your, in your estimation, what is like the key age group as well as how can missionaries reach that age group? I, I clearly bent towards young people here in Taiwan. I mean, I applaud and I respect uh, the, the, the ministry to the working class, to the subgroup of Hakka and, and others, or the, you know, Renzuming, you know. But I think if you really want to make a difference in Taiwan, we still need to kind of target the young college people. And college is just a great time to get into people. In China, all those doors are closed. I mean, they close the campus and all that. But in Taiwan, those are still open. English teaching still attracts a ton of people. I mean, we're currently even running an online children's English camp. I mean, people just sign up. That's awesome. I mean, yeah, so people, this is a, still a way to easily outreach to the local Taiwanese. And college students are still very open-minded. The only thing I have to say to my fellow missionaries that wants to work with the Taiwanese is you need to figure out how to explain the perceived problem that these young college students might have to Christians is why do you guys hate homosexuals <laughs> when you guys know how to answer that question 
you will have a very effective ministry to the college students. That's true. I, I would say I've had that question many times. <laughs> so, so I understand. Yeah. So kind of going back a little bit. So if war does take place in Taiwan, I liked part of your seminar. It talked about having a game plan ready and things like that. Like what, what would you do? And even me and my wife have talked about that now, just because we, we thought it was, we both thought it was very interesting to <laughs> kind of discuss. So what in your estimation kind of would be a good game plan as well as if the people, if some people do decide to stay, what would ministry kind of look like in an active war zone? Like, Wow, I, I feel duly unqualified to address those, but I will give you some, maybe some ideas, okay? Um, I, I want to say, number one, if you're with a large organization, you probably have a game plan already. Big organizational leaders, the very big ones, mm -hmm. they have very detailed plans, and they have files that they give to all their missionaries uh, so that they know where to show up, in how many hours and they will be airlift or some <laughs> ways of where to go. <laughs> yeah. They know where to go. Very clear, very detailed. If you are sort of do it on your own missionary or, you know, you're kind of a business mission or doing something else, you're now with a big org. This is something that you should think about and consider. Yeah, I know for, for us personally, we are independent missionaries. We're not with any uh, organization. Our, our churches have sent us. So we're supported by churches and by individuals. And so, yeah, I definitely think it's a good thing to think about because we've actually discussed it a little bit with our churches back home now. <laughs> I guess what advice would you have for, for independent missionaries to help them figure out a game plan for themselves? Yes, uh, I think number one is... Um, you want to decide, would you stay or would you not stay? Some of the big organizations, how they deal with war zone and risk assessment is they can make decisions and say, we're going to pull out from Southern Sudan, yeah. all our teams, okay? So, and everybody is out, okay? If you want to stay in our organization, but if you want to stay on locally against what we are giving you the direction, you can sign this document. Basically, it's a form of resignation. And you say that you have made your own decision to do this and you are resigning from this organization. Does that make sense? So that makes sense, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's a, so from an organizational perspective, you want to make sure liability is not yours, right? You are <laughs> yeah. not actively sending someone to, okay. There's, there's so, not a whole so lot of insurance that, that companies that are going to insure a person going to a war zone. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So... That's understand, understandable. So the first question I think for anybody is you need to decide, will you stay or would you not? Okay. In what situation would you stay? In what situation would you not stay? Okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, it could be uh, missiles shooting over. It could be embargo, right? It could be very slow, kind of drawn out, no blood, right? I mean, but whatever, right? It could be just... Another question that they need to ask is if they have children or health issues, you know, they need to think through that. Okay. Yeah. So my wife and I, we have a 13 year old and my mother of 74 year old used to live with us, but she's dual citizen. So, you know, we said, Hey, if war really breaks out, we're going to send my daughter, my mom back to us, but we will stay. Yeah. 
and that's a family decision when we talk about it in our family. Of course, you know, I, I don't encourage a young family of two or three years old to include them in this conversation. That might scare them. So <laughs> that's, but, you know, exercise that conversation in your discretion. Yeah. Have a little judgment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so that's um, one thing is you just, you want to mentally kind of think about things, have some kind of, so it's not like you're making a decision right on the spot. Yeah. Like you already have prayed about, thought about, and submitted to the Lord. Yeah, I think definitely pre-planning is, is smart when it comes to, especially this topic, obviously. Having, you know, a nest egg, quote unquote, <laughs> something yeah. where if you suddenly have to go back home or suddenly you need to go back home or you've decided if war is breaking out that you're going to go back home, having enough money to even do that, not having to suddenly figure out how to get enough money to do that. All right, so let me give you some practical advice now, okay? Perfect. Number one, I think people need to look at getting a will from their country of sending, yeah. wherever you're from, okay? I, I think that will help your relatives back home, your descendant, whatever, a lot easier, just in case anything happens. I mean, if you don't have one, start working on it. Okay. It's, it's not hard <laughs> not difficult you, you can, can do it, get online, it get online yeah use a legal zoom you know whatever yeah. okay <laughs> so just do that make sure you you have a simple easy way number two is i actually would keep some u.s dollars cash on me because once war hits you just don't know how currency will work and you yeah. want something of reserve currency status which u.s dollars is going to help reserve <laughs> yeah Okay, so I would keep a few thousand US cash, okay, close by. Not in a bank because you don't know if a bank is going to be open or not. So yeah. if you have asset in Taiwan and you decide to leave, you need to kind of leave with a local person be in charge. Like yeah. you have to have some kind of succession plans. And I know a lot of the Western org, they also have those kind of things in plan away. Interesting. I had never thought about that. That's a good good tip. Not that I own anything in Taiwan, but <laughs> right. I mean, you know, anything. I mean, yeah. even your furniture, you whatever, you're you're renting a property. Are you gonna yeah. pay rent? I mean, those kind of things. Is somebody gonna even correct? So you don't know, but yeah. just have someone that's looking have a plan after. <laughs> on that. Yeah, have a plan. Yeah. I think those are all pretty uh, basic things I would do. Obviously, we're not a gun-bearing country like the United States, so that's not something that we can do, <laughs> we want to do. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, I guess along the war, if war were to happen, at what point do you think that China would decide that the cost of even trying to take Taiwan would be too high? Or do they decide that before they even yes. were to go to war? I, I think, yes, I think they decide before that. Okay. Once they initiate, I don't know if you will stop. Interesting. Do you think? Because again, like I said, it's about faith. Once it's about yeah. faith, it's not about. It's not about the cost. money. It's not about. Yeah, yeah, it's not about the cost benefit analysis. I agree with you when it comes to China. I think if they started it, then they're going to finish it or at least want to try to finish it. Um, yes. And I, I definitely think if they decide the cost is too high, it'd be before anything. <laughs> before there were any boots on the ground or anything like that. So I guess my final question 
would be what in your estimation do the next you know, 5, 10, 20 years hold for ministry in Taiwan and China and kind of what will it look like? People just got to do, keep on doing what they're doing. Some people ask, so yeah, sure, the missile shoots over. What would you do? Any, would you do anything different? And I think, no, you should just keep on doing what God calls you to do, you know? Yeah. Uh, I, I think it's legitimate people will consider that they have to move out, you know, but if God calls you to stay with the people, then you stay with the people and you just minister to them and maybe they will be even more open to what you have to say at that point. <laughs> Who knows, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I actually don't think people should kind of look differently or act differently in, in that situation. I mean, I think a lot of different circumstances are going to be pushed upon people. Yeah. Being prepared, just thinking about it, prayer about it, ready for what God wants to do in that circumstances will help a lot. And again, when I arrived in Taiwan a little more than four years ago, I did not, I did not think China is going to invade Taiwan is going to be on the agenda. Okay. <laughs> but this last two and a half years, it just shows me a very different side of what's evolved. And I, my assessment kind of resound with a lot of the, the professionals. I mean, if on my PowerPoint slide, you'll see like the Asia Pacific commanders, both under Trump and under Biden agrees that, you know, the military actions to Taiwan is under seven, six, seven years. That's their approximation that can happen. So I think my whole idea is people just need to, this was not a calculation five years ago. It needs to be in the calculation now. Yeah, I definitely yeah, think a lot has changed in the last five years. <laughs> yes. So again, I'm not prophesying that this will happen. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying, let's just be prepared. Yeah. If it's I'd, I'd rather be prepared and nothing happened, then something happened to be completely unprepared. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, one more, one more um, things practically sure. I would say to do, even missile shoot over, is foreign missionaries, the people who really know the area, living in the rural side, countryside, it's probably easier for them to find shelter and things like that. But for city dwellers, big cities, you'll hear your language skill is not best and stuff like that. I think one of the contingency plan you definitely want is you want to have a very trusted local Christian brothers or sisters or family that you can maybe live together closer. You really can trust that you can just say, let's stay together. I hadn't thought about that. That's probably, that's definitely a really good practical idea if you do end up staying or even if if missiles shoot over something like that were to happen suddenly having a place to go and obviously there are tons of missionaries in taipei and in taiwan and and a lot of them speak either some or very little chinese taiwan's so great with english <laughs> you don't need to and so i think yeah that's very good practical advice to have a friend close friend that that you can count on in that area especially a close christian friend that will yes. uh help you with regards to language and just having an extra person there is always great just for some comfort yeah. 
Yes, yes. And, and um, they're just practical things. Um, if really uh, things getting worse, uh, you don't want to take anything for granted like electricity, yeah. okay? which also means you probably want to move from your high rises to a friend that's living closer to the ground. Yeah. You know, things like that. You just, you know, you don't want to take things for granted. Yeah. yeah if you live in a 20 story building, walking down 20 stories yeah. doesn't, doesn't sound enjoyable. No, <laughs> no that's you really know, good you, practical oh. advice that, that I had thought of some of those. I mean, my wife had talked about some of those, but there are many things that, that we had not thought about, but that's really great advice. I would compare Taiwan current political situation as an Old Testament prophet time Israel. Okay. Okay. Why would I do that? Is because the the whole history of prophet time Old Testament Israel is that they were always caught between the the power of the Nile Egyptians and power of the Mesopotamia, which is the Tigris Euphrates. Those two big rivers supported big superpowers in the ancient Near East. For them to expand, they have to collapse. They have to go through this one very narrow stretch called the Jordan River Valley, which it just happened that Jerusalem, the whole country of Israel, (laughs) happens to be on. So the whole prophetic history is they're going to profit which country you're going to align yourself. When are we going to get conquered if... That's basically what's going on. So Taiwan at this point is at the knife's edge, tip of the spear between the superpower of the United States and the rising number two of China. United States have long built since World War II this island chain to command to contain communism, starting from Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, Philippines. So it can never have a war. It's very far away from American territory. Gets a heads up before anything happens. (laughs) Great idea. And the only place China is going to break out of this chain, and only place that it has a legitimate claim so that it's not inviting another country is Taiwan. Taiwan is a narrow stretch of the River Jordan Valley. Just like Old Testament Israel. No, I think that's I think that's very true. Okay, so China, I mean Taiwan really doesn't determine its own fate at this point. It's really at the mercy of the two superpower and it's fighting and what's gonna happen with them. Well guys, that's it for this week. Thank you for joining us as we learn about all things missions in East Asia. Big thank you to our guest Peter Wong, as well as Dale our editor and Nelson our producer. This podcast is brought to you by Taiwan Missionary Fellowship. Till next time, bye.